0: Welcome to you, philosopher. Today, I'd like to start with answering a couple of questions, and then move on to our conversation about whether or not we're moving forward or backwards. And I think actually one of the questions that was asked by one of our listeners, in fact, helps lead towards that conversation I'd like to have about uh, moving forward or back, socially speaking. So um, one question was kind of what's what's the goal here in um, in this conversation in general, as, as as a whole, like what is what is the goal of you philosopher? And I guess it, it helps if I discuss it briefly in terms of narrative. I decided that I wanted to do this in part because of the most recent election. And I felt that the experience that I was having in watching uh, a year of a lot of negativity and a lot of uncivil discourse kind of culminate in an election itself that continues to still have ramifications in terms of splitting people apart. And the problem then to me seemed, well, how many people are trying to talk in ways in which they aren't necessarily just taking a side but are honestly trying to understand the other side, which I guess leads to that to that issue of whether or not um, whether or not there should be comments and um, uh, why I, I'm asking people to email. Well, this isn't to preclude comments. The goal is to promote discourse that is civil as civil as possible and which seems kind of silly since people can't really directly respond though actually i would like to have other people on to be able to talk with them as well but rather after that um, Wisconsin-Madison study suggesting that people become uh, kind of more entrenched in their views and they tend to misunderstand the argument more than they did after reading really negative comments, I guess I also wanted to provide a kind of I'm here and that's kind of the goal as a whole to engage in dialogue that says I'm here and you're here and I would like to hear you. Uh, So the difficulty being that the way I think we're discoursing not just in terms of, of comments online but the way that we're engaging in conversation, even face-to-face, is one that itself doesn't really say I'm here, and you are here. Instead, of it's a kind of discourse that says, you're there, and, and you're wrong, and I'm going to prove you wrong. So, I guess what I'm hoping to do is, A, provide an example of kind of how philosophical thinking and pleasant conversation can promote progress. And we seem to think that it doesn't, that people who are willing to talk with other people are kind of traitors to whatever their actual cause is, and that they should be willing only to stick to their guns. And I would like to suggest that progress is made by working together. at the very least by hearing other people out the number of times that i found out that i was wrong about something that i was sure that i was right about in terms of not even talking about like deeply held beliefs that i've changed but just like i thought a particular policy wouldn't work or that a particular idea would collapse well i've been wrong about that and so that suggests to me that i should be willing to talk with other people and hear them out and so the goal here is to try and talk with other people and hear them out, but also to kind of be an example of, of being open to actually hearing from people. And well, And here's my, here's my email address. I do want to hear from you and I do want to hear your thoughts. And, and I feel as if that's one of the major things that we're really missing right now. Um, we don't really have a whole lot of politicians saying to the people who didn't vote for them, I want to hear you, and I do hear you. We hear a lot of politicians speaking to their constituents. We hear them speaking to the people who voted for them as if, okay, now your reward is is you get what you want from me. But there isn't a whole lot of saying, well, I've been elected to this position in in the state or in the county or uh, nationwide of, okay, I'm now not just representative of those of you who voted for me, I'm representative of everybody. And in order to do that effectively, I at the very least need to hear. And obviously a majority votes for you or you win your election and you have an obligation to meet your campaign promises and to to represent that majority, hence the notion of a democracy. But it doesn't change the fact that there's all of those other people that are counting on you and depending on you to also at least hear them out. And so really here, I just really want to be able to have a pleasant conversation about sometimes what are really difficult issues and to kind of point out that those issues come out even out of the most kind of innocuous places like film or TV and and to look at the way that things like film and TV and current events comment on issues that are much deeper than maybe we realize. And to that effect, I. I've been thinking about kind of toying with the idea after talking with some people about maybe part of what we should be doing as a a populace is instead of expecting our politicians to be models for us, maybe we need to be models for them by engaging in civil discourse. Um, And that's not to say that people shouldn't be able to protest or that people shouldn't be able to voice their complaints, but that we need to demand from them and show them what it means to be people who can converse with each other, um, converse with people who who we believe to be on the other side. And so I was thinking about maybe part of the problem is the fact that we have this idea of like, well, there's just things we can't talk about, particularly at the dinner table, right? You don't talk about politics, you don't talk about religion. I, I imagine that Thanksgiving for many people was, if not tense, at least, a kind of game of making sure to sidestep around in order to keep pleasantries. And I'm not so sure that's a good thing. And and don't get me wrong, I think keeping pleasantries is a fantastic thing. But the fact that we have these rules about not discussing certain issues means that we're not very good at discussing these issues with people, A, with whom we disagree, and B, um, with people who are... um, in a situation that should be kept pleasant. In other words, we're kind of either prepared to talk with people who happen to agree with us or we are willing to talk with people and fight. But we kind of recognize like, oh, but we won't be able to talk about this in a circumstance uh, that's supposed to be pleasant without fighting, so we just won't talk about it. And maybe now is the opportunity for us to retrain ourselves in that and to demonstrate to politicians and and the people in charge, like, no, here's how you can engage in debate in ways that show, A, I disagree with you, B, here are the reasons why, and C, I want to understand your position as well, Uh, D, here's what happens when you consider all of the facets of that conversation. In other words, I'm thinking about something like hashtag politics at dinner, right? Um, and, And it's a little bit of a mouthful, so if someone has a better idea, let me know. But To actually practice saying, you know what, I know you're on a different position of, of this and I know that we're at the dinner table and I don't want indigestion and you don't want indigestion, so I'd like to hear your thoughts. And then if you're interested, I'd like you to hear my thoughts. And we may not come to agreement. In fact, we probably won't, but let's practice actually hearing the other person, responding Um, in positive or at least civil ways and demonstrating a willingness to converse with people who we know differ. And maybe if we practice that, if we reach out to members of our families and our friends who we know see something on the other side and say, hey, I'd like to sit down with you and and not to try and convince you that you're wrong, but I would like to sit down with you and hear your thoughts about this. Why did you vote for so-and-so? Or why do you believe in this? and then start looking for common ground. And as per one of our previous discussions, we don't need to go particularly in depth, I realize that for many people, seeking that common ground is seen as a weakness, but we can also view it as a point of departure. In other words, even if we don't want to have to give up much ground, if we can find where the common ground is, we can move forward from that and we can say, oh, I recognize that people, um, Disagree with me about this and I recognize that I want to move in a different direction But I also recognize that it's okay to start at a point where we both agree and then see if I can follow your line of argument or you can follow my line of argument To a point where we can get where we actually need to go or I can get where I need to go Um, so the point then only being is. I'd like to encourage people to, preferably without violence and without a lot of anger. Um, in fact, exact opposite. Actually, practice civil discourse, and that's my goal here. is is to is to do that with you. And um, I, in fact, tried it over uh, Thanksgiving with some with some family who with whom I was not even particularly um, close in terms of like seeing them with any regularity. And I knew that there was a real chance that they disagree, and some of them do. But I started our conversation with, I really want to take an opportunity to try and promote and practice hearing people with whom I disagree. And I'd like to hear your thoughts. And if you're interested, um, I'd like you to hear mine. And, and the fact this is, has actually went really well and um, we had a lot of fun. <laughs> and it's, um, the, the, only, the only thing I can say about it that makes it easier is being willing to have a sense of humor. We're all a little bit silly. Um, (laughs) There really may not be any honest politicians and uh, it helps if we can laugh at ourselves and kind of how ridiculous um, sometimes we, we can all be in how seriously we take ourselves. And that's not to say that the issues aren't important and that's not to say that a lot of people don't suffer as a result of some of our decisions, but it does help if we can laugh at ourselves a little bit, and that makes those conversations easier. So, hashtag politics at dinner, and let's see if that makes any traction. That can be fun. Um, So, moving on from there, uh, one of the questions that was asked was, uh, another listener asked, because I had had some conversation about Thanksgiving and the way it kind of reflects our thinking about um, the treatment of Native peoples here in the States was um, one listener asked about the uh, Dakota Access Pipeline, which is a wonderfully uh, tense and in many ways tragic issue. So I'd like to get there though by talking a bit first about this issue of whether or not we kind of by default move forward. And there does seem to be at least some acceptance that, societally speaking, we're not necessarily always going to be moving forward. Like, at least if we say it in words, like, oh, sure, sometimes we take a step back, but then we'll take two steps forward, et cetera, et cetera. What I'd like to suggest is, it's actually entirely possible that things do get better and then they get worse, if not worse than they were previously. And, or at least worse in different ways. The tendency is not just in terms of the United States, but to think about humanity as making this constant progression forward and upwards, that our morality is better now than it was in the past. And so, first of all, some of the things that I'm going to discuss here, I think uh, any historian would have uh, many nits to pick or or concerns, and I would definitely welcome them to bring up their thoughts there. Um, But we're going to kind of look at a general and very brief gloss in terms of kind of historical context. And so some, things are, so some things are fairly obvious, right? We are not always getting better morally. And that seems to me to be a given if we just reflect on the fact that we are um, a country that did at one point in time have a tremendous number of slaves and that the kind of slavery that we enacted here in the United States was of a very special strike, almost unheard of previously. Um, not just in terms of the number of people who were forced to be slaves, but the treatment of those slaves and the inescapability of their circumstance and of their, and and, and the idea that by default, their children also would be in that circumstance. And so why do I bring that up? Well, I bring that up because there was a time before that, right, which had some pluses and minuses, but consider, for instance, I don't know, ancient Athens, right, which again had slaves, right? Um didn't let women vote, had plenty of problems, but notice, so Athens had democracy, at least of a particular kind, and so they were doing some pretty amazing things there in ancient Greece, from developing um, the idea of the atom, to uh, development of drama and comedy, to sculpture that really still to this day hasn't been outdone, but also major conceptual um, progress in terms of things like democratic notions and other political forms. And so to realize that we kind of went from that, there's this golden age of Greece that we discuss, where there's all these flourishing of ideas, and to the realization that there's this very, very dark time much, much later on, many centuries later on where we're literally forcing other human beings to eat out of pig troughs um, and maiming them and raping them and killing them and treating them no differently than an end table, except we probably valued our end tables more. It seems to me that there was definitely some progress there in, in ancient Greece and then it seems like, at least in terms of the treatment of slaves, it definitely went backwards for a while here in the States. And again, that's only looking at really like one set of variables. And that's not to say some things didn't improve and some things um, didn't get worse. It's a good deal more complex than I'm making it sound. But I, I'm pointing at that in part because of what we talk about in terms of what we call the nader of race relations here in the United States. Um, we have the tendency to think, okay, we started out doing something not so great. Um, But we had a great premise, right? this idea that all people, or at least all men, are created equal. And this democratic notion kind of keeps pushing us forward all the time. Well, I do think that there's excellent reason to believe that democracy itself is in constant tension with anything that um, pushes people down, at least holistically as a group that the tendency is, is if you can keep a functioning democracy, right, that you prevent tyrants from kind of taking control, that eventually oppressed groups will find a voice because it's kind of the nature of democracy to, to seek voice and provide voice and not give anyone more than one vote. So there have been some really impressive movements from where we started to where we are in terms of civil rights acts and in terms of uh, women being able to vote. I mean, there's there's no question that there's been motion in those ways. But has that motion always been forward? And the answer to that is no. Hence the nature of race relations here in the States. After the Civil War, and, and we have to admit that race relations between blacks and whites was really very bad before the Civil War. After the Civil War, there's actually a period of time, right, Generally called Reconstruction, which things got a good deal better for blacks. Um, that's not to say that uh, blacks and whites were like, you know, tromp- tromping through the the forest happily with the butterflies, but that there were blacks who were um, winning office in state and local elections, becoming members of Congress. Um, that the literacy rate skyrockets for the black community during Reconstruction, at, you know, after eighteen sixty five. And, and keeping in mind that before that it had been illegal to teach many black people to read, right? So there's this tremendous improvement that takes place. And in many ways, integration that we di- we don't really realize is happening because we tend to think it went slavery, segregation, and then now, right, today, Barack Obama, black president, it's, it's all better. But it actually goes slavery... Uh, reconstruction and the improvement of the uh, treatment of of blacks and their their ability to vote and education and uh, their ability to participate in public office to then back down into Jim Crow laws, grandfather laws, segregation, and then through the fight of the civil rights movement, it improves again. And so um, really just to give kind of one of my favorite examples is, is if you ask people, who's the first major league uh, baseball player who's black um, people will tell you Jackie Robinson. And that's actually incorrect. Uh, Mr. Robinson did cross that color line and, and, and in no way am I demeaning the, the impressiveness of his achievement. But the fact of the matter is, um, the first black man to play major league ball was uh, Moses Walker. And, but that's happening like in 1880, 1890, and he, he leaves and shortly thereafter, these kind of gentlemen in quotes agreement about uh, whether or not blacks are allowed to play becomes a thing. And this de facto segregation of the uh, major league baseball becomes uh, unbreachable for decades. So in other words, things had improved A black black man um, with tremendous talent and ability finds himself able to do this. He leaves in part because things are getting worse and because of his mistreatment. And then there's rules that are then basically set down to prevent him from being able to do that. And so things get better, and then they get worse, and then they improve again. Um, My major concern is, is that they're actually going to get worse again. And my argument for this is as follows, and um, it's really in a lot of ways just pure conjecture and requires consideration of whether or not certain assumptions are true. But here's my concern, and, and keep in mind, um, whatever side of the table you are on in regards to race relations, my point is, is that worse means more tension, right? Um, more anger, more hatred, and more divisiveness. And I'm worried we're moving in that direction. And it's not just because of something like, oh, well, because of the election or something along those lines. What I mean is as follows. There is a a lot of evidence that suggests that children who are raised around people of different views and different colors and different religions, et cetera, uh, are more tolerant. And that just kind of stands to reason, right? In other words, we tend to just kind of absorb whatever is around us, and that becomes normal, right? So had we been raised in a time where people wore, where men were wearing powdered wigs and women were wearing powdered wigs, um, we would probably think it was odd if we saw people outside who weren't. Um, otherwise, we have to concede that everyone at that time was like, oh, what's with the powdered wigs? What's? Oh, that's so strange. No, I mean, they grow up with it and it becomes, becomes normal to them uh, through their childhood. So children who are raised with people of uh, different races and creeds and ideas and and positions, uh, for them it's normal to be around people who are different from them in these ways. Well, desegregation right through the 60s and 70s, etc., did a lot of work to actually force uh, people to integrate which is something that's really irritating people now, hence, you know, ideas like school choice, et cetera, et cetera, that we want to be able to go where we want to go. We don't want our children to have to be at a particular school. Um, but that having to be together, right, uh, I think is a very real possibility. If it's true that children growing up around people of different viewpoints and races, um, if it's true that they're more tolerant people as a result, that it's, more comfortable for them, that they just have less of a problem with it, then the children who were growing up in schools at that time, it wasn't nearly as weird for them as it was for their parents to, say, have friends of a different race. And that seems pretty true, right? If I speak with, depending on which generation I speak with, they're less or more comfortable, often directly in correlation to age, with... uh, interracial marriage, for instance, right? So uh, many of my students will say that their parents are comfortable with them bringing home a uh, a girlfriend or a boyfriend of a different race, but their grandparents, uh, and again, this is a bit too broad of a brush. I don't want to be unfair to all the grandparents out there, but there does seem to be some correlation there, at least anecdotally speaking from my own experience and from my students. So that being said, we do, have, we do have a lot of reason to believe that schools are more segregated now um, than they were, say, in 1969. Now, keep in mind, that particular statistic, which has been checked by PolitiFact, is is kind of one of those mostly true statistics insofar as there's a lot more complexity to that. And a lot of people hearing that go, well, wait a minute, I went to a school of very different different populations but keeping in mind there's there's a lot of schools say rural schools inner city schools so on and so forth that really do have virtually no one of any differing race and uh, it's so it's important to note also that even if we say well that's that's going that's going too far Nick that it's not that bad right well there's a lot of ways in which it isn't that bad, right? The ways that schools were discriminating and divided in in the 1960s um, are radically different from the ways that they're kind of self-segregated now. However, notice that let's say it's just even just marginally true that this kind of improvement in terms of students and children being around people of different races, this is now starting to, this is a trend that's starting to move backwards. Maybe pretty significantly, in fact, and pretty quickly. Maybe it's not as bad as that particular statistic suggests it is, but bad enough to say, okay, where we were in the 1980s and 1990s, we're not there. We're not there anymore. Children who are growing up now have a much likelier chance, or at least let's say likelier chance, of going to a school in which they are raised around and growing up around people who basically only share their ideology, their race, right, their religion, et cetera, et cetera. Well, if that's true, then that means that what we produce right, through our educational system ends up being students who are gonna be less tolerant if it is in fact true that growing up around people Of All these different ways of thinking tends to result in more tolerance Well, then the the converse would seem to hold true as as well We could have had more tolerant young people They will become increasingly less tolerant as more and more young people grow up only around people who think like themselves and Only people who look like themselves, etc, etc. So here's my concern that if And that's a big if. If all of those, if those two kind of major um, ifs are true, then what we're going to actually see happen over the course of, say, the next 20 or 30 years is actually uh, more tension in terms of race relations. Insofar as um, those young people now who are growing up in more segregated environments are going to become adults and become voters and become people who, unlike maybe their parents, and this is an odd possibility, they might actually be less tolerant than their parents were. So I can't help but wonder if we're about to enter another nadir period in which 20 years or so from now, we actually are less tolerant than we are. And maybe, maybe it won't bear itself out in policy, though I think that's unlikely given that people vote. But it does seem at least that there might be reason to worry that there will be more racial tension, that there will be more tension in terms of religion and in terms of people who just like I mean, if we think about it, if you go to a school in which everyone there is basically a Democrat or liberal leaning, or if you go to a school in which everyone there is basically conservative, how much sympathy or even understanding are you going to have of that other side? So. If things seem polarized now, I can't help won't wonder if they're going to get worse. So there's kind of my theory on uh, no, things don't always get better. Sometimes, in fact, they actually do get worse. And unless we do something about it, unless we have a vision for the future um, as the people that are helping bring in new generations, keep in mind whatever world they come into, that's going to be the world of normal. And unless it's pretty bad for them, they're probably not likely to do anything about it, right? Um, that just is kind of standard opera- operating procedure for human beings whatever we're born into, we um, engage in that normal. So in the last couple of minutes to answer this issue uh, about the the Dakota Access Pipeline, um, I can't help but wonder if it just rings a little bit to me, a little worrisome insofar as there's that issue of moving backwards. And where it really started to uh, ring that way was um, when there was this issue of basically evacuating or removing the protesters, which seems okay. We understand why if, if they're being dangerous or, you know, we have to build something, et cetera, et cetera. But it's always a little tense to realize that you're removing Indian people <laughs> and moving them somewhere else and forcing them to move. It's just like there's this part of me that goes, oh, wow, that sounds really familiar. And obviously it's not the same thing. But it's a little close for comfort if we're trying to move forward. And there's this realization that some somewhere between 1778 and 1871, at least um, at least we're told in, in, in texts like Behind the, the Trail of, of, of Broken Treaties, um, the United States has broken something like 500 tre- treaties, or at least violated in, in some way with... Um, native populations here. And so there's this concern of of a history of it, of being willing to kind of violate their rights in order to achieve often economic ends. And so in this particular instance, one wonders, okay, well, maybe it's, you know, it's it's really just about trying to do what's in the best interest of the country as a whole, so that we can have this kind of, um, you know, less expensive energy, right? Lots of people are going to benefit from this. The risks are very, very, very slight indeed, that there could be any actual problem. I guess the main question that comes comes to my mind is how much actual conversation are we having about it? Is this just something that we're doing again? And in which case, it just seems really familiar, historically speaking, that there's a... Something that we want to do for financial reasons. Um, there's some Indian land in the way, so you all won't mind kind of moving here for a couple of minutes, or you, we're just going to go ahead and you know just dig under. It's not going to be a big deal. Um, one wonders how much real, even though it it doesn't actually go through technically through their reservation. One can't help but wonder how much conversation we've had with the elders and the leaders about what's in the best interest of everyone and if only out of kind of respect for the number of treaty violations that there there have already been and respect for what the United States has I mean even if we say okay well the you know initially that our interaction with the Indian peoples was, you know, just all's fair and love and war. But then there's a point in time where, okay, you have this group of people, you have them on reservations, you tell them that you're going to respect them in these ways, and then you move them off again, uh, or you know, you, you violate their their rights in some other way. And so I suppose that it all kind of ties together with this concern about moving backwards. My suggestion, at least at a glance, is that we be very careful about moving backwards, and that we'd be very careful about kind of rehashing things that have already happened that we've done to really harm uh, a group of people. And it's interesting because we're now so intertwined in some ways, right? Um, There's a large group of some 2,000 veterans that are apparently going to go and kind of just kind of act to stand in the way to help protect protesters. And so these are veterans who have fought, you know, in the United States Army. They're representative of the United States military, but at the same time, they're also kind of standing for, um, well, I think kind of peaceful conversation. And at least it sounds like that, I mean, they're not taking military action. They're just simply standing so that people can be kept safe. So I suppose the, the first thing that we really wanna look at doing is asking ourselves, is this a rehashing of old history? And if it is, It's been a very bloody history indeed, um, with a lot of violations of of human rights. So the final thought that I'll, I'll leave you with in this is, what we should be asking ourselves, I think, through our dialectic, through our conversation, through our hashtag politics at dinner, isn't just a matter of what we want. I hear a lot of people talking about that in public speaking you hear people talk about you got to get what you want, you know, go after what you want. But I think there's also a question about who should we be. And we're not talking, I think, nearly as much about what what makes for a great country. We're talking. There's a lot of conversation today, right now, contemporarily, in terms of what you know, making America great again. Well, the question becomes, well, what makes a country great? I, I think John Stewart talked about that recently, and well, one answer is you know, military might, another answer is um, financial success. In terms of Dakota Access Pipeline, some of the answer might be um, you know, energy and efficiency and you know having a, a strong economic engine. But for a country that tends to pride itself in values, um, there's something to be said for that part of what makes a country great probably isn't just how much money it has or how much military power it has, but how it treats other people how it treats its own people, but also how it treats other people. And the Indian population falls into both categories. People who have been terribly wronged, but people who are also part of this country, but people who also have been given the promise that they'd be able to freely um, interact in, 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 in their own ways as, as they see fit. Um, so when we think about this issue, I suggest that we also think about not just Um, where we want to go and how much money we want to make and and how how great we want to be in terms of the standard ways of thinking about it, but also just in terms of what makes for the best country when we think about human beings and the treatment of other human beings. And I think if we start from there, I think everyone kind of on both sides of the argument will probably find middle ground, um, which might be one of the most optimistic things you'll hear me say for a while. SO IT'S BEEN GREAT HAVING THIS CONVERSATION WITH YOU. IT WENT A LITTLE LONG, A COUPLE OF QUESTIONS TO ANSWER. I'LL TRY and BE BRIEFER IN THE FUTURE OR BREAK UP THE VIDEOS. BUT um, THANK YOU FOR YOUR TIME AND HAVE A GREAT WEEK.